Let's go ahead and begin with a uh, word of prayer, if we could. Uh, Paul, would you open us in prayer tonight? Father, we thank you for this time learning. We thank you for Dr. Snowberger to come and teach us. We pray that you will uh, help us learn more and more about your word and how we might grow in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are going to start here tonight with our quiz. It's pretty low-key. There's no grade assigned. It's something we grade in class. It's just sort of to help you make sure you re- reviewed and, uh, and we emphasize things that uh, show up that Anybody need more time with that? Or? I, I know you just started there. But, uh. Well, let's go ahead and do this. And I'm, I'm able to give very tricky true-false questions because I'm not actually assigning a grade. I can be as tricky as I, I want to be. So, uh, But the whole, the whole goal here is so that we can 
generate discussion and review. And so uh, if you get them right or wrong, it's not so much the issue as whether we've reviewed the material. So let's, let's do that then. What are the two primary historical sources for Wesleyan theology? Moravian. Okay. So yeah, Moravian, or we could expand it even further to just German pietism, but specifically Moravianism. Who is Wesley's dad? He's a parish priest in the Anglican, the Anglican Church. Yes, so so it's a combination then of Anglicanism and uh, continental German pietism, and these come together to bring some interesting uh, Holy Spirit kinds of emphases into uh, European Protestant theology that had not really been in evidence. Um, so uh, we've, we've got this whole ladder model of sanctification where you start as a as a uh, a, uh, a carnal Christian and you graduate up to a spiritual Christian. Uh, so this whole semi-gnostic idea of uh, of being ordinary Christians and then super spiritual Christians sort of emerges, and then also the. Uh, uh, the elements of of of, of uh, Anglicanism as well, okay. So, which which again borrows a lot from Eastern theology, okay. Number two, the nineteenth century adaptation of Wesleyan theology, known by the mantra "Let go and let God," is sometimes called the Princeton theology. False. What is it? Keswick theology. Okay, so tell me, tell me what Keswick theology is. I guess I gave you a sort of a little bit of a summary there. Basically, takes the idea that Wesley introduces uh, that says you advance in your sanctification by marked stages, but you arrive at the point of perfection at some point at the end of your spiritual life. Typically, he says, right before you die. In fact, he, he mentioned he. He's really only he said he's really only ever known one person that he thought surely was already perfected. It's an elderly lady, uh, but nonetheless, you have to be perfected before you can uh, breach heaven's doors. But Keswick theology uh, took that same idea and said, "There's got to be a shorter way. There's got to be a way of getting to that to that sort of perfected that vaulted perfected state." before you live your whole Christian life. And so the shorter way then uh, was laying one's all on the altar, uh, consecrating one's life, uh, uh, dedicating the baptism of the Spirit, sometimes it's called, whereby in a moment, a crisis moment, you can be brought to that stage of perfection. Now, in Keswick theology, you could lose it. Nonetheless, uh, there, there was there, there were similarities here. You can see where it sort of fits in the timeline uh, with Wesleyanism, okay? And that had a very significant impact on early fundamentalism and dispensationalism. Number three, 
by calling the Holy Spirit a spirit, we mean that he's invisible. <coughs> False, what do we mean? What do we mean? Uh, no, Enduring identity without a body. Yes, very good. Enduring identity apart from a body. Um, now, fact is, he is generally invisible, but that's not the point of emphasis here uh, when we talk about him being spirit. He has an enduring identity. He has still mind, will, affections ongoing, even though there is no phenomenal form, so no, no physical form. Okay, so that's why we call him a spirit. We are spirits too, not pure spirits, because we also do have a physical manifestation. Nonetheless, when we die and our bodies are laid to rest, we have an ongoing identity apart from a physical body. Okay, so that's what we mean uh, by the Holy Spirit being spirit, which is one of the elements of personhood. Another element of personhood is freedom. And so we have another true-false question dealing with that. Because God, because the Holy Spirit is God, he, can, he is absolutely free. He can do anything. Remember we talked about absolute freedom? We said even God doesn't have absolute freedom. There are certain things that God cannot do. He's limited by his own nature and character. So, for instance, Titus 1, 2, he cannot lie. Nonetheless, we say that he, he is purely free in that there are no external constraints upon God that can tell him what he may or may not do. He's limited only internally by the, by the forces of his own nature and character. There's no one outside of him who can stay his hand or say, what are you doing? Say, so, so the Holy Spirit is free, but not absolutely free. Absolute freedom really doesn't exist anywhere in the universe. Uh, just uh, uh, what we call here natural freedom. Okay? Questions on those things or anything else we've uh, addressed here? I know sometimes we walk away with questions half, half made and uh, perhaps you've completed them and have them in hand here for, t- for tonight. If not, we'll go ahead and pick up here in the notes where we are on page 13 having walk through nine elements of personhood uh, that the Holy Spirit has. Of course, the emphasis here is that the Holy Spirit is not merely a force, you know, may the force be with you kind of kind of a thing, some sort of a some sort of an energy that comes alongside of you. It's actually that the Holy Spirit is actually a person. And another line of, of defense for that is the fact that personal pronouns are used of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the word spirit, pneuma, uh, in Greek is a neuter noun, um, and so uh, we, we uh, it's yeah, we, we don't have them in English really. We usually have masculine or feminine or uh, but but in in Greek they're all assigned, and some of them are neuter. And the Holy Spirit is neuter, probably because it's an abstract idea. Spirit or wind or air is an abstract idea, and that's probably why it gets assigned the neuter gender. Uh, Nonetheless, when applied to the Holy Spirit, we see routinely that the scripture writers do something grammatically incorrect and change the, uh, the pronoun or assign a pronoun to this 
uh, neuter noun as a masculine pronoun. So uh, when you see the Holy Spirit, you would expect the pronoun to be it. Uh, but uh, in almost every case, there's two exceptions here, uh, almost every case, the scripture writers break with grammatical, syntactical propriety and change it to a masculine pronoun. Okay? So, uh, John 16, but when he, the spirit of truth, he, it comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring you glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you all that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Holy Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known unto you. So, well, I didn't count them, but probably about eight, six or eight of, of those masculine pronouns are used. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who, masculine, he is a deposit. Now I say here, uh, there are a couple of occasions here, one in John 14, and then uh, two clustered right there in Romans 8, two occasions in Scripture uh, where, the, where the neuter pronoun is used. The fact that most of the time they don't use this neuter pronoun draws attention to the fact that the uh, scripture writers were aware of and wanted to stress the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person and not merely an abstract force. We also find the Holy Spirit is juxtaposed with other persons and assumed to be a person. He's perhaps the most familiar of these is when we are in the baptismal formula. We are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, implying here that there's identity of, of, uh, of, of, of form. They're all persons. Also see John 14, the Holy Spirit is called another comforter, another of the same kind. He was replacing a person, Jesus Christ, and so the implication is here that he is also a person. You might add here that the things that he does as a counselor are personal functions. He comforts, he counsels, he strengthens, he encourages, he directs with words, he intercedes. All of these are verbs that appear in John 14, 15, and 16 to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. These are personal functions. Acts 15, 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Okay, the implication is that we're all persons of some sort. Like us, we are logical, personal beings who actually can think and reason and come to conclusions. By the way, if you do need a set of notes, I should have mentioned that earlier. There's a there's some there's some extras left left up here. Even if you even if you forgot yours at home, you can at least borrow one of these. I don't want you to sit there with nothing in front of you if you if you need it. So. Uh, feel free to get that after everyone's eyes are off of you now. <laughs> Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen, the Spirit is again juxtaposed with the other members of the Trinity in the apostolic benediction. Okay, and so these actions which we mentioned are all ascribed uh, to the Holy Spirit, and they they really are only personal kinds of things. The Holy Spirit can be tested resisted, blasphemed, 
Let's go back to your kitty cat. You can't blaspheme your kitty cat. I mean, this just, just doesn't make sense. This isn't a person. The Holy Spirit can be insulted, can be lied to. I suppose you could lie to your cat, but he won't know the difference. So, so it's kind of pointless. The Holy Spirit can be obeyed. So all of these things are functions of persons. So the Holy Spirit, we want to start off by saying, is a person. The second point that we want to make, though, tonight is that he is also God. We don't want to simply make him another person or some sort of a lesser person uh, than the other members of the Godhead. He is a person of the Godhead. He partakes of deity. So he's a divine person, a distinct person within the triunity of God, and partakes of the essence of God subsists in each member of the Godhead wholly and indivisibly, simultaneously and eternally, such that the Holy Spirit is co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal with the Father and the Son. So the Holy Spirit is as much God as the Father is, is as much God as Jesus Christ is. And how do we know this? Well, he's called God, firstly. Several passages where the Holy Spirit is identified in God in such unmistakable ways that it's impossible to conclude in any other way than that he is, in fact, God. 2 Samuel 23, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke and said to me. Okay, so we recognize that these are parallel statements. These are not separate statements that the, uh, the, uh, the scripture writer is making here. What he's saying, how is it that God spoke to me? Well, the Spirit of the Lord was on my tongue. Psalm 139.7 Where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And this is a psalm addressed to Yahweh God. So, uh, what we would ordinarily think in terms of the Father. Okay, so where can I flee from God? Where can I flee from God the Father? Well, I can't. I can't flee from the Spirit. Okay, the implication is both of these are alike God. Acts 5, 3, and 4, this is the whole story of Ananias and Sapphira, if you're familiar with it, uh, where uh, and, and both of them uh, had owned some property together and seeing uh, other members of the church uh, get some attention uh, for selling their property and giving it to the church. Uh, they decided they were going to do this, uh, but but rather than give the totality of it to, uh, to the church, they were only going to give a portion to the church, which is certainly not wrong. It was theirs to do what they wanted to. But they erred by coming along and saying, we we're giving you the full price of, of the land in order to perhaps make their stock in, increase in their in their in the church itself. And so Peter confronts both of them on it separate occasions, right back to back. And the accusation laid against them was this You've lied to the Holy Spirit when you kept back for yourself some of the money that you received for the land. You've not lied to men. You lied to the God, implying necessarily that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, God. Paul makes a similar 
statement here, 1 Corinthians 3.16, you yourselves are God's temple, and God dwells in you. No, the Spirit dwells in you. Again, implying here that the Spirit himself is God. There's other passages here that we've already addressed here, where the Spirit's juxtaposition with the other members of the Trinity means he is co-equal with them in these formulas, baptismal formula, um, and the uh, and the uh, apostolic benediction. We could spend more time here with this, but I again, I don't, I don't know that this is something that there's going to be much uh, debate about here, but uh, we can see at least eight attributes of God exhibited here by uh, the Holy Spirit. We already looked at omnipresence. Where can I go from your spirit, your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I go to the far side of the earth, far side of the world, you're there. I can't. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, your spirit is there. Okay. So implying then that, that God, the spirit, is present everywhere on earth and under the earth, so to speak, uh, in the in the realm of the dead. Omniscience also belongs to the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. That's quite intelligent. Isaiah 40, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or been his counselor, informing him, with whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and formed him in the way of understanding? Of course, it's a rhetorical question with the implied answer. No one did, but the implication then from, 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 from that is what? He had all of this knowledge intrinsically to his very person. He knows all things. So he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent. Uh, when Mary is told that she is going to have a child and she doubts because she's never known a man, there's an assurance made that the power of the Most High will come upon you. God can do things that are naturally impossible, such as make, make, make a virgin have a child. Okay, so omnipotence illustrated very aptly there in that miracle that he... Uh, that he, uh, that, he, that he performs. Eternity. He's called the eternal spirit. Love. Paul urges his readers by the love of the spirit, implying here that the Holy Spirit has exemplary love that they should mimic. Of course, holiness should not really be a, a question here. He's called the Holy Spirit 93 times in the New Testament. So therefore we understand him to be holy. Truth, he's called the spirit of truth. The context here, particularly in John 14, is he is the one who has all truth. Uh, the truth that's going to be transmitted to the apostles and, and put down on paper as the scriptures uh, so that we have everything necessary for life and godliness, everything that thoroughly equips the believer for every good work. Holy Spirit gives us all truth. He will guide you into all truth. And this is the truth that he has in view. And life. 
Okay, the Holy Spirit is the source of light for Christ and for all believers because he himself is life. Okay, so he raised him up from the dead, and so we also will be raised up by the power of the Spirit as well. Okay, so he possesses the attributes of God. He takes the uh, he takes shares identity with God. He performs the works that only God can do. He creates. Uh, very early on, we see the Spirit of God, verse two of the Bible, right? Spirit of God hovered over the waters, probably implying that in between days one and two, he's overseeing the process of creation, holding it together until day two begins. Job 26.13, by the heavens, by, by the Spirit, the heavens were cleared. Probably a reference here to the division of the waters on the second day of creation. There's a little bit of question here, but uh, uh, we, we see actually the pieces of the creation coming together. The water goes into its into where to where it's supposed to be, and then the stars appear in the sky. Uh, and this is all done by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the creator. He regenerates. Okay, only God can save. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save anyone around us, but God can. And the Holy Spirit, uh, we find here, the, 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 the metaphor used is to be born again, or born from above, or born with the Spirit. There's three different phrases, that well, actually two different phrases that are used, born again, and probably should be understood as born from above, although we're not likely to, to uh, change the popular usage, because born again has sort of become part and parcel with our with our Christian vocabulary, but probably born from above is actually a better translation there. Uh, but it's also described here as being born of the Spirit. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit regenerates, produces Christian life. Not only does he grant life, he also resurrects, raises people from the dead. He who raised Christ from the dead physic- physically to life, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. So here we're not just talking about spiritual life here, but the restoration of physical life that Christ experienced, the resurrection, and that we will experience at a, uh, at a yet future resurrection. He sanctifies, we're chosen for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, so he sanctifies us. He inspires the scriptures. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. If you remember back to uh, Systematic 1, we talked about this verse, the scripture, the, 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 the process of inspiration here, the word Pharaoh, uh, which I always remember that one because if you, I, I, my first Greek instructor, my Greek instruction was from Robert Summers, the first verb that we had to learn was pharaoh, uh, to to carry along. I'm not sure why that verb. It's actually a rather poor verb to choose as your paradigm, but um, but but uh, that was the verb we we, we used, and uh, um, it means to carry along. So I always remember that one because it's the first Greek word I ever learned. Um, uh, but uh, the the word is used uh, uh, in in Acts of. Uh, how ships are carried along or borne along by the wind. 
uh, implying that they do not produce their own energy. You know, so the scripture writers did not, by their own energy or imagination uh, or intelligence, produce the scriptures. They were conduits for the scriptures that were carried along by the Holy Spirit who came and supplied the content. Uh, obviously, they're involved in some sense writing, uh, even to, in some sense uh, selecting the, uh, the, 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 the words along the way from a, from a vocabulary set that they have. Uh, but God's Spirit is supplying the content uh, for the Christian scriptures. And finally, he convicts of sin here. Oops, excuse me. Uh, one more. He, he conceived the human nature of Christ and the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the child shall be called the Son of God. And so he produces the human Jesus. And then he convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We'll return to that one uh, because the doctrine of the convicting work of the Spirit is an important one to us. Okay? So he is divine. He is not only a person, but he is a divine person. He is God. He has the names of God. Uh, he is juxtaposed with with uh, other members of the Godhead. He has the attributes of God. He performs the works of God. And then we sort of, uh, uh, sort of summarize this by saying he must then be a distinct person within the Godhead. Uh, in this, we're, we're uh, making sure that there is no uh, nothing remaining here of modalism that some have held. We talked about this in uh, Systematics uh, 2 and 3 with respect to the other members of the Godhead. The, the idea that there is one God that sort of shows up in three different modes or, or, or forms uh, that's not the way we should think we should uh, think of God, but rather that there are three persons of the Godhead. Okay, uh, so uh, the Scriptures describe the Spirit as distinct from the other two members of the Trinity, even at times in conversation with the other two members of the Trinity, which would be very difficult if modalism were the case. Okay, the three sometimes even appear side by side together as separate entities at the same time. Probably the um, most visible one that comes to mind is the baptism of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming up out of the water. The Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and lights upon him, and then the voice of the Father speaks from the cloud. Matthew 4, uh, the temptation of Jesus Christ, the very next chapter, the Spirit led the Son into the wilderness uh, where he makes converse, where he makes statements here about his Father. So three members of the Trinity here at once. People are baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And the syntax is such that these are not, these do not share identity. Jesus prays to the Father to send the Spirit. Okay, so implying here that there are three uh, persons here in view. Here again is this uh, apostolic benediction. Grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, implying that each one uh, brings to 
uh, the equation some unique function, and not as though the others are incapable of producing love or fellowship or grace, uh, but this is that they are the ones who are the agents, uh, the primary agents of these within the Godhead. Our prayers are conducted in a Trinitarian way, right? Through Jesus, we have access access by one Spirit to the Father. We read elsewhere that we pray to the Father, and the Holy Spirit gives utterance to our words uh, and, and in, 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 in groanings, right? And so He's able to uh, take what we pray and and, and present it suitably uh, to God, so that uh, God uh, responds favorably. And then we find that the uh, the electing work of God is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, such that we obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. So again, we, we see here. Uh, I mean, these are simply statements of Trinitarian function here, uh, but the our our point here is that the Holy Spirit has a particular role to play in this, and it's not it, it is not carried by the other members of the Trinity. They work together, each supplying something to the equation here. Okay, so he's a distinct person within the Godhead. This leads us to a question that's sort of perpetually with us in Trinitarianism. Uh, how is the Holy Spirit related to the other members of the Godhead? And so the question here is, uh, is this something that's always been this way? Is it something that happened at, in time? Uh, did, did the Father produce the other two members of the Trinity? Uh, has he eternally generated them, or what? How should how should we think of the relationship uh, between the three members of the Trinity? This is perhaps an area where we sort of have to put our thinking caps on, but hopefully this can uh, make some sense to you. Uh, so you guys who already went through this with the doctrine of Christ, uh, this will be some review for you, but uh, uh, hopefully it's uh, it's such that it's it's helpful. Okay. So we say here that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, we, we find this, uh, the statement made in the book of John, uh, John fifteen sixteen, where we find that the Holy Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father. And there's a, quite a bit of debate as to what is meant from by that, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, or elsewhere uh, we find that the Father and the Son send uh, the Spirit. What is meant by that? Well, there's been attempts throughout church history to explain oops, skip the, page here, the relationship between, uh, the ontological relationship between uh, the members of the Godhead by this verse, but I think they're, they're, they're ill-advised. So uh, the question here of what is proceeding is, is at issue. The relationship between the Spirit the other members of the Trinity has historically called been called the procession of the Spirit, drawing from the terminology of John 15, in that he is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. But the meaning of this procession is under debate. Let's look at some options here. 
It could mean, and, and, and when I say it could mean, I'm not saying all of these are theoli- theologically equally as likely. I'm just saying grammatically, this are, these are some of the options that we could derive from those words. Not all of them are, or really even could be, true. But let's look at them. It could mean that there was no trinity at some point. Rather, the third person sprang into being at this time by an act of paternal spiration. That the father spirated him into existence. Uh, uh, just, as, just as one might say he birthed the son, so he spirated the spirits. The spirit sprang out of him. As we've seen, the Spirit's function in the Old Testament really doesn't work with that. The Holy Spirit was in existence before John 15, 26, and so therefore we cannot conclude from this that the Holy Spirit sprang into existence at this point in history. Second option, very popular among uh, church within church history, is that the Father has spirated the Son, his being, from all eternity. So there is some eternal act of God whereby he produces the essence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the essence of the Trinity has always existed through two divine acts, an eternal generation of the Son and an eternal procession of the Spirit. I say this position improves on the preceding. Obviously, this Trinity didn't come into being in the book of John. So at least this pushes us back to eternity past. Nonetheless, I'm not sure it works for us. I say, I, I say here, it's difficult to see a distinction in this view for Macedonianism. What was Macedonianism? Anybody remember? The idea that the Holy Spirit is created by God. Remember what was what was what was the uh, what was the counterpart in Christology? Arianism. Arianism, good. Okay. So one of the earlier early major heresies of the church was Arianism, that Jesus was not uh, the, the second person of the Trinity as we know him was not fully God, but rather he was the first and greatest of the divine creations. So he had divinity, but not deity. Uh, He may have been then adopted into the Trinity, but he was in some sense less than the Father. Okay, And this is one of the early heresies of the church that had to be stamped out. There's a similar heresy like it didn't get nearly the press time, uh, but but it's similar, and that's Macedonianism, that that God the Father, or perhaps the Father and the Son in concert, created uh, the Holy Spirit. Now, admittedly, this pushes the event back to the beginnings of time. Nonetheless, the action, the, the, the creating action is hard to deny in this kind of kind of language. It's also difficult then to see why Christ would make such a statement like this here in John 15. Why here? Why now? There doesn't seem to be any reason for Jesus to say, okay, the Holy Spirit's coming. Oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit 
is, is an eternal creation of the Father from eternity past. Okay, let's keep going. It just seems like it's completely out of place within its context. Seems to be preparing his disciples for his departures and for the arrival of something new, and that is the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so these options both have a common tension, parallel to the tension discussed earlier uh, uh, in our in our course of study on the doctrine of eternal generation. They suggest that God's persons are not asse, that is, they are not of themselves, they are not independent, but they receive the two... The, 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 the Son and the Spirit receive their identity, receive their essence from the Father and are not and do not participate in the all-important doctrine of the aseity of God, the isness of God, the fact that he is independent and of himself. Okay? Rather, they are of the Father rather than of themselves. Okay? argued in these notes that the idea of an active and continuous communication of deity to the Son and the Spirit is neither exegetically nor theologically acceptable. Christ is the Son. He is not eternally sunned. The Spirit is the Spirit. He is not eternally spirated, per se. seems better, then, to come up with another solution, namely that the procession occurs within what we call the ec- economic realm. Okay, So we're not talking about the being of God, but rather the mission of God within the hierarchy of Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, Which is an eternal relationship. We find that that goes all the way back to creation. Um, now 1 Corinthians 8, 6 speaks of the, fa- the fact that the Father and the Son had separate functions in the creation of the world, the Son submitting to the Father, and so we have we have a, a submission of the Son to the Father that extends all the way back to eternity past, or at least back to the uh, days of creation, and we assume the same would be true of the Spirit as well, that there is perpetually a hierarchy a function, an economic hierarchy, if I can put it that way, within the Godhead. So the Father doesn't emit the Spirit's essence, some sort of a metaphysical sense, or produce the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of God and is not produced. Okay? Um, So the Father then sends the Spirit out on his mission. Now, there's two possible options here uh, as well. Now, it could mean... That prior to John 15, uh, the, the, the third person of the, of the Trinity was equal in every sense with the Father. There was no subordination either of essence or of function. And that the subordination of the Holy Spirit began at this point. Okay. As we've seen above, there were functional distinctions in the Godhead from the earliest moments of the Old Testament. Genesis 1-2, the Holy Spirit is, you know, the, the God spoke the worlds into existence. They are, they are maintained, Colossians said, they were maintained by the Holy, by, by Christ. 
And here we find in Genesis 1-2 that the Holy Spirit is sort of keeping everything together as the, uh, as the week unfolds. So our better, our, I think the better understanding of the procession of the Spirit is that this procession in John 15 is simply an instantiation of the hierarchical relationship that has always existed within the Godhead. So this is not so much the procession of the Spirit, but rather a procession of the Spirit, one of many missions that the Father or the Father and the Son sent him on during the course of history. Okay? So this is a mission here distinctive to the New Testament. But the Son is also identified elsewhere as the Spirit's sender, suggests also that the hierarchy, as normally expressed, is Father, Son, Spirit. It's a normal order. Which is furthered by texts that identify the Holy Spirit of God as, at points, the Holy Spirit of Christ, at least two occasions. Within the Trinity, the Father eternally acts as the initiator, the Son as the revealer, the Spirit as the facilitator. We can probably put other terms along the way in there, uh, but that's that's what we that's what we typically have. That's not to say that the that the persons of the Godhead are more important. The Father is more important than the Son, or the Son's more important than the Spirit, or the Father is more God uh, than the other two members. Nonetheless, there there is this hierarchy of that Father almost always is at the, at, the, at the top of the list, and then the Son, and the Spirit. And so that these, this language here of sonship and spirithood are not implications that they are somehow ontological shadows of the Father, but rather that they proceed from the Father in terms of uh, the mission that they are carrying out. In, the, in, in God's universe, God's world. Questions on that? I know we sort of, some pretty heavy stuff there, um, but uh, any thoughts that you have? Yes, sir. So it implies the direction is being given, you know, from the Father to the, going to go do this mission or do this and go there. But, um, I don't think about what we're going to say this, but... <laughs> Like the, but the decision is not collaborative, for example. Like, okay, this is the mission of the Holy Spirit. Is it, you know, picture the boss at the desk, okay, this is your mission, you know, go and do it. Right, yeah, I mean, I mean the, the, the metaphor does sort of break down because God is not just the boss sending right. his yeah. underling. Right, so... So there is there is a sense in which the analogy does break down. There's there's a there's effectively a single will of God that they share. It's not as though the, the Holy Spirit says, Oh man, do I have to? <laughs> so there's 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 unity of the divine decree and the divine will. Um, and a, a glad submission. It's not a forced submission. Nonetheless, I think it is a, 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 a an eternal expression of subordination. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? That's pretty heavy stuff, but uh, I think you're up to it. Okay. One last question that we want to address here uh, before we start into our 
our section, uh, which really takes the rest of the semester on the, the works of the Holy Spirit. We wanted to spend some time with the person of the Spirit and then uh, move from there to the works of the Holy Spirit. We have a question here on how the Old Testament saints would have perceived uh, the Holy Spirit. As we noted in our very first class, which most of you didn't, weren't here for, I just want to throw that in there, though, for those of you who were, uh, the idea of plurality within the Godhead is not immediately revealed in the Scriptures. So the idea that God is three uh, certainly doesn't show up uh, early on in the Scriptures. There are some who would suggest that perhaps there are hints of plurality that start to emerge along the way, uh, but the idea of God being triune is is really a New Testament doctrine. Uh, I'm not I'm not saying by that that God wasn't triune in the Old Testament. I'm just saying that they probably didn't know it. Okay, that that was not something that had been revealed to them. Okay, it's probable then that many Old Testament saints would have perceived the Spirit of God as analogous with the human spirit. Okay, so God has a spirit, we have a spirit. And so perhaps they wouldn't have thought in terms of him as a separate person. Hard to know. There doesn't seem to be any indication in the Old Testament that the, 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 uh, that the understanding of the Trinity was was in evidence. Yes? But when David said, do not take your spirit from well, what did he mean? Who was he talking to? Well, okay, I, my, 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 I, I don't know that he was thinking, don't take the second, per, the third person of the Trinity away from me. But rather, I, probably something more, don't take the, uh, the, the metaphysical assistance that you have been given to me. Okay, if I if I were saying you if if I, if I were saying you know sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll just go ahead. Are you, are you here? Yeah, I'm I'm here in body, but I'm not in spirit today. <laughs> you know, sometimes we'll say those kinds of, kinds of language implying what that you're here in physical form, but your mind's elsewhere. Here, and so you say your spirit, and so perhaps David spoke thought in those kinds of terms. So he was this, referring probably to the Father. He was referring to God. I don't think he would have thought in terms of Father, Son, and Spirit. He was thinking of God. God's God's invisible presence. If I, if I could put it that way. Okay. I, I, again, I, I'm not saying that there wasn't Trinity, or that there wasn't Holy Spirit, and perhaps, in retrospect, we can perhaps assign this kind of idea to... Uh, Old Testament language, but it doesn't appear that that's something that they were thinking in, the, in those terms. Uh, the third person. Now, I, I do say that there are a couple of places here that come tantalizingly close, but the idea of Trinity as, as an Old Testament doctrine, I think, is, is probably a, a hard one to maintain. Okay. Okay, so we find here God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. Genesis 6.3 could mean that my Holy Spirit is no longer going to do his convicting work, but probably would have been understood as, I will no longer 
have this struggle with man. Alternately, Old Testament saints may have seen the coming of the Spirit as the adoption of a divine disposition or gift. So the Spirit came upon Elijah and prophesied, for instance. Then Elisha, of course, then receives a double portion of the Spirit. Uh, Probably the Spirit of prophecy would have been uh, the idea here. Uh, The totality of the references to the Spirit of Yahweh in the Old Testament especially as he empowered and informed various Old Testament people as the theocratic kings, uh, the prophets, suggested a minimum they did personalize the spirit of God. So they understood it to be God, not just some sort of an abstract force that sort of empowered them. That they fully grasped his distinct personality within a triune arrangement, however, seemed quite unlikely. Probably they saw the angel of Yahweh as the material representation of God and the spirit of God as the immaterial manifestation of their personal God. As Revelation progresses, however, the distinct personhood of the spirit may possibly have been visible to the astute reader, although we have no explicit evidence that this actually occurred. Uh, There's two passages in Isaiah that sort of jump off the page to me as perhaps being, how can I say, primitively triune. Uh, The Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Of course, these are words that are used of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Uh, uh, And so the the question in Isaiah is, who is the me? Uh, some would say this is this is the, the suffering servant or the Messiah figure speaking. Others say it's simply Isaiah. Uh, but in, in 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 especially if we're thinking in terms of this as being the Messiah figure, the Father sent the Son along with His Spirit. Uh, perhaps could suggest three persons. Same thing in Isaiah sixty one. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Again, a a passage uh, that is quoted by Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And so perhaps there, there could be built a tentative doctrine of the triunity of God from the Old Testament. But I guess at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical, hesitant to... To think of Trinity as an as an Old Testament concept, very clearly revealed in the New Testament. I'm not sure that this would have been known in the Old Testament times. Again, I'm not saying that there wasn't there, God was not triune in the Old Testament. I'm just doubtful uh, that very many people knew it, if any. I have a question: What would they have thought? This could be similar to how you answered first, but. As far as even the creation account with the verse that you alluded to with yeah. the spirit hovering. Right. Um, and then also those verses where it says, Let us make man yeah. and our yeah, there, there's a, there's there's some debate about about that. I know a lot of a lot of folks do look at that. Um, Let us make man in our image as sort of a conversation within the Godhead, and and so perhaps plurality of the Godhead, maybe recognize that that word Elohim, God, 
appears in the plural. It doesn't mean that God is plural, but rather this is what's sometimes called the plural of majesty or the uh, or the plural of uniqueness. Um, like for instance, okay, there's a in Job, yeah, the, uh, the the one of those monsters, dinosaurs, whatever he was. Um, he's called behemoth, which is a plural form. And yet, as you work your way through the, the text, it's clearly one animal, right? But but he but he receives a plural because he's the biggest, greatest, grandest, biggest animal that's out there. And so it's the the plural of majesty or uniqueness or or greatness. And so, even though the form is plural, the individual's singular. And so, what what ends up happening in Genesis one is, in order to have subject pronoun, uh, uh, yeah, uh, pronoun and antecedent agreement, there would have had to have been plurality there. But we probably could, without doing injustice to the text say something like, I'm going to make man in my image and not re- and not take really anything away from, from the text as it stands. Uh, there, there are some who would disagree with me rigorously, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> but, yeah. But as we understood, they understood it, it wouldn't have... Yeah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have looked at the Hebrew and said, oh, I wonder if there's two or three or ten of them. They... they they would they, they wouldn't have thought anything of it. Okay. Other thoughts? Okay. If I let you go early tonight, you promise to behave. <laughs> Don't run through the hallways. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's 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 a natural stopping point. I have to, I I've already calculated. I have to get through six pages. A week, and I've, I've, done, I've made my goal, and it's a natural stopping point. So let's go ahead and give you an extra 15 minutes off tonight, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of. Oh.